Hello, and welcome back to Reinforcement Talking, a new podcast series from the UCL AI Society. My name is Charlie, and I'm going to be your host for today's episode. I'm really glad to be here with Paul Shari. Paul Shari is uh, the Vice President and Director of Studies at the Centre for a New American Security. He holds a PhD in War Studies from King's College London, an MA in Political Economy and Public Policy, and a BS in Physics from Washington University in St. Louis. Previously, Paul served in the US Army, um, completing several tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he went on to work in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, um, establishing policies on autonomous weapon systems. He is the author of several books, including Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of War, which won the 2019 Colby Prize and was named among Bill Gates's top five books. And most importantly for today's podcast, he is the award-winning author of Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, um, which has come out just recently. And we'll be, we'll be speaking about um, your book today, Paul. And yeah, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Amazing. So um, I think a, an interesting route into this, um, into the geopolitical implications of AI now and AI in the future, might be to look back to history and think about what sorts of historical analogies might be useful um, for thinking about um, how AI might influence great power relations. Yeah, I think one of the most helpful historical analogies that I've found is to think about AI um, as a general purpose technology, much like electricity or the internal combustion engine or computer networks that has a whole wide range of applications. And therefore, the Industrial Revolution, or the, or the more accurately, like the first and second Industrial Revolution, um, being a good historic analogy for sort of grounding thinking about what might the transformative effects that AI could bring on society and global power. Because we saw during that time period, not just industrial technologies used for specific applications, but in fact, the industrialization of entire societies. Um, it certainly seems possible that we'll see in the coming decades a similar intelligentization or cognitization of society as we see AI embedded in different aspects of society. And when it comes to global power, one of the things that was quite interesting is the Industrial Revolution saw countries rise and fall on the global stage based on how rapidly they industrialized. So, for example, during the 1800s, Great Britain and Germany industrialized faster than Europe, and they raced ahead in terms of national economic power, and then by association, military power, by using the economic power to translate that into military hardware, things like tanks and airplanes, um, in the early 20th century. And they were able to eclipse Russia in terms of national economic power by industrializing faster. But one of the really interesting things to me, as we saw during the Industrial Revolution, the key metrics of power changed. So the way that you would measure national power, coal and steel production became key inputs of national power. Oil became a geostrategic resource that countries were willing to fight wars over. And so what is that in an era of artificial intelligence? And we've probably all heard, you know, phrases like data is the new oil, which like, like any comparison, you know, there's um, ways in which that could be helpful and ways in which that's maybe not very helpful for ways to think about data. But certainly thinking about data, computing hardware, human talent, the institutions that are needed to translate all of these inputs into useful AI applications is, I think, a helpful way to think about measuring national AI power and how countries are going to be able to stay ahead in the AI revolution. So uh, the, the idea, I think you're, you're hinting at here, is that there's this link between economic change, transformative economic change, and hard military power. Um, but I, I think it might be interesting just to, to drill into this slightly more, into motivating this issue, and, and why, why this is, um, why the race for AI development, if even a race is the right term here, why this is a race we should be caring about. In, in regards to China-America relations, how would you describe the Chinese government's attitude towards technology and AI? Is it a sort of techno-utilitarianism, you know, a, just, a, just a greater acceptance of costs and benefits and a more openness to change? Or do you think the Chinese government is um, influenced by a sort of more malign 
attitude towards technology and its potential implications. So long question, but how does how does the Communist Party view AI? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, China's leader Xi Jinping has said that science and technology has become the main battleground of global power rivalry. So the Chinese Communist Party absolutely sees science technology as a core enabler of political, economic, and military power. Um, they're clearly using technology domestically to tighten control over Chinese citizens. Um, they've been doing that for the last 20 years with controlling the information space through censorship and propaganda, and are increasingly using um, digital technologies like surveillance cameras and AI, uh, cloud computing, to monitor and track the movements of Chinese citizens and to monitor their behavior. And through things like the social credit system to, to nudge their behavior, um, to, to modify it or change it in key ways that in some cases solve social problems, but also enhance political control. But also externally, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has been quite clear that they see technology as a key enabler of their national independence, their economic and their military power. And in particular, China is heavily reliant on foreign technology, and they see that as a main vulnerability. In chips, for example, China imports over $400 billion a year in chips, and the Chinese government rightly sees this as a major vulnerability. Um, I think we actually you know, have seen the U.S. use China's dependence on foreign chips, their hardware gap, um, in a couple instances in going after Huawei and uh, pretty effectively crippling Huawei's 5G business by denying Huawei access to cutting-edge 5G chips, which, interestingly enough, are not made in the U.S. either. They're made in Taiwan, but they're made using U.S. equipment. And so the U.S. was able to, uh, through an export control regulation called the Foreign Direct Product Rule, basically um, stop the export of uh, chips made in Taiwan into China because they're made using U.S. equipment. And then more recently, in the October 2022 export controls, the Biden administration also captured advanced GPUs um, and restricted their access to China. And so I think for the Chinese Communist Party, they are interested, they're clearly using AI technology to enhance their domestic social control. And um, they're also using it externally to increase their military strength. China's military is very interested in the intelligentization of the PLA and their military forces. Um, and China's been rapidly improving in technology across a range of areas. The government's been very active in industrial policy and efforts like made in China 2025, um, trying to accelerate China's tech development. They've had varying degrees of successes. In 5G, for example, they were highly successful in areas like genomics and quantum technology. And in frankly, many aspects of AI, China's done very well. There are some areas where they have struggled. Domestic semiconductor um, manufacturing, for example, is a place where they've struggled quite a bit. And the new export controls are gonna to continue to hold them back. But I would point all of this back to the central overriding concern of the Chinese, Chinese Communist Party is protecting the Chinese Communist Party. That is the common thread through all of this, whether it's looking at external threats or internal threats. It's actually not about protecting China as a country. Uh, that's a sort of secondary goal and instrumental goal to protecting, first and foremost, the party. Thank you. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. There's, there's these different, there are different faces of power in, in which AI could be used. There's domestically with internal surveillance in China, which I think it might be interested, interesting for our listeners to hear slightly more about. Yeah, so how, how is AI currently being used in internal domestic surveillance? Yeah, it's, it's really quite striking. China is pioneering this very dystopian new model of techno-authoritarianism, where they're using technology to enhance the party's um, grip on its citizens and control. And the most extreme form of this we see in Xinjiang with the Chinese Communist Party's campaign of repression against the ethnic Uyghurs in Xinjiang, but there are certainly aspects of it deployed um, countrywide. So China has roughly half of the world's 1 billion surveillance cameras. They are ubiquitous in China. It was striking to me when I traveled to China just 
how um, omnipresent the surveillance cameras are. They're on light poles and, um, you know, traffic lights and halfway down the street on uh, more light poles and some places to points of absurdity. I would count the number of cameras on one pole and they're not trying to be hidden because, of course, the party actually wants to subtly remind people that they're watching you all of the time. Um, and increasingly, China is using AI to power this surveillance network that they've been building out over the last couple of years. Because when you have 500 million cameras, who's going to watch all that? Well, AI is the answer. And China's been using AI for facial recognition, gate recognition. The, the extent of deployment of AI and facial recognition is astonishing. Now, I wouldn't want to overstate the degree to which facial recognition is widespread. It's a little bit actually unclear to assess, you know, how many of these cameras are supported, for example, by facial recognition or gate recognition or license plate readers. Um, but we know of at least instances where all of these tools are being deployed in parts of China, um, police using facial recognition sunglasses, facial recognition being used to capture people for jaywalking, for using too much toilet paper in public restrooms. Um, so for all sorts of, in some cases, seemingly trivial uh, societal infractions, as well as more serious ones as well, um, either going after criminals or going after political dissidents. In Xinjiang, there are police checkpoints that are set up uh, quite regularly every few hundred meters in the major cities uh, that include um, biometric sensors that, of course, are powered by AI, as well as um, scanners for, for phones um, that would sift and look for, you know, banned apps or data on phones. And then a lot of these systems are increasingly being networked together through police cloud systems that the Chinese police are building, um, having the ability to, for example, connect people's uh, geolocation data with other kinds of behavior. Um, and so, you know, looking at things like, for example, if two people tracking their cell phone geolocation data, you know, frequently in a, an internet cafe at the exact same time over, you know, a period of days and weeks, um, then, you know, tying those people together. Maybe they have some kind of connection or looking at people's spending habits. So if someone buys a hotel room in the city in which they live, that being flagged in the police cloud systems is something to take a closer look at. What are, what are they doing in this hotel room? Um, and so this idea of building this very intensive AI-powered surveillance system is one that is very much, I want to say, a work in progress inside China. Um, a lot of these systems today are they are decentralized, they're fragmented. We're seeing sort of proof of concepts. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to overstate the extent to which it is a comprehensive, you know, sort of all-encompassing panopticon today. But we've also seen what the Chinese Communist Party has been able to do in terms of things like controlling the information environment over the last 20 years, where early on, censorship of the internet was also fragmented and incomplete. And they continued perfecting the Great Firewall. And today, even though the Great Firewall itself is leaky, Chinese citizens can get around it using VPNs. Um, the reality is that the net effect is China is extremely effective in controlling the information environment within China. Um, and in fact, when you see instances of public protests, which are exceptionally rare, and we've seen them in the fall of 2022, um, most notably in response to protests against the COVID lockdowns. They're notable because they're so rare. And the, the cost to Chinese citizens for speaking out in even minor ways against the government are absolutely draconian. And so I wouldn't want to, um, you know, while it's important not to overstate the extent of China's AI-enabled surveillance today, the track that they are on is truly terrifying. Um, and there's every reason to believe that they will be able to implement this in the years to come. I think this comparison with the control of the internet is, I think it's really interesting. Uh, I think Bill Clinton quite famously said that control of the internet was like trying to nail jello um, or jelly for us British people to the wall. Yeah. Um, and, you know, see how that's turned out. You talk about, um, uh, a vacuum in AI governance that the West should be looking to fill. 
what, what can the West do to promote that positive vision for the world? Yeah, well, and first, I guess I'll say, I'll, acknowledging that the uh, many people would find the West in sort of like a debatable or problematic like sort of framework. I, you know, I, I, I try to think about um, democratic countries and democratic values. And I think it's really important that democracies come together to push back against this creeping tide of techno-authoritarianism globally. Because these tools that China is developing aren't just staying in China. They're being exported around the world. There are at least 80 countries that have purchased Chinese surveillance and policing technology. Um, but even more troubling is the export of China's laws and norms about how to use this technology, the social software that empowers the technology. China's been very active in doing trainings with other countries on things like cyberspace and information policy. They've done this with over 30 nations. And in many cases, we've seen that national laws in other countries follow Chinese engagement in Tanzania, Uganda, Vietnam. Um, Zimbabwe has been quite vocal in wanting to emulate China's model of domestic surveillance. And that is really quite troubling that um, we begin to see the replication of various forms, obviously modified to each country's uh, particular circumstances, but of these sort of Chinese-style domestic surveillance in other nations and its effect on human freedom. So the problem being that these means of social control and social repression, um, this the, the autocrats toolkit um, is being exported to other countries and is not just remaining within China. Um, so I, th I think this gives good reason for, um, for democratic countries um, to be thinking about AI governance more and wanting to be at the leading edge of AI development, um, ensuring democratic values uh, are present. And um, so we, we've spoken a little bit about um, about in you know social control, and you've also hinted about military power, and I think this would be interesting. Um, you know, an another possible historical analogy, which I think you touch on in your book, is the machine gun, and mm -hmm. how it's completely revolutionised warfare and um, different battles through history where just have a crazy mismatch in casualty rate based on differences in military technology. So how, how could AI be similar to that sort of historical analogy? Yeah, again, I think probably a helpful way to think about what AI might do over the long term in warfare is looking at how industrialization changed warfare. And so certainly the machine gun accelerated the rate of fire that troops could deliver on the battlefield, um, dramatically increasing casualty rates. But it, it was really the combination of the machine gun and tanks and artillery and aircraft and submarines um, and all of the logistics that supported them that led to the mass destruction that we saw in World Wars I and World War II, where whole cities were demolished in uh, Europe and Asia in World War II. And this industrialization of warfare, the, the taking of industrial era technologies and translating them to then destructive efforts, increased the physical scale of destructiveness in warfare that militaries could bring to bear. And one of the concerns is that AI could do the same at the cognitive level of warfare. So just like the Dust Revolution led to the ability to create special purpose machines that can perform physical labor, forklifts and locomotives and cars. AI is doing the same for cognitive labor and that the cognitization or intelligentization, to use the military, uh, Chinese term, of warfare might increase the speed and scale of information processing and decision making of warfare and radically transform the uh, cognitive aspects of war so that militaries are able to process larger amounts of information faster, reach decisions faster, um, perhaps accelerate the tempo of war. In the long run, some Chinese scholars have hypothesized about what they term a singularity on the battlefield, a point in time at which the pace of AI-enabled action on the battlefield eclipses humans' ability to respond and to understand, and humans have to effectively cede control over to machines. And that would be a very troubling prospect and raises difficult questions about maintaining human control over warfare or war termination or controlling escalation. I don't think that's a near-term prospect by any means, but 
Um, I think it is worth acknowledging the difficulty of this challenge, right? It's a little bit like in the early 1800s trying to imagine, well, how might the Industrial Revolution transform warfare and envisioning, you know, what World War II is going to look like. Um, and so, you know, I, I want to be humble in our ability to think about what AI might, might do to warfare, but also imagine that the effects could be, in fact, quite transformative uh, in ways that might be quite dangerous and destructive. Mm. Yeah, this this term, a military singularity. Um, I think some of our listeners will be familiar with the idea of the singularity, more referring to like an economic event. But I don't think many people have been thinking about the impacts that AI could have on warfare. Um, yeah, so so Paul, I think we've, we've spoken a little bit about um, motivating the importance of this issue and why economically, militarily, um, socially, democratic countries should be thinking about how AI development can be shaped by democratic values. Um, so I think now would be interesting to, to dive into the, the full battlegrounds that you speak about and hear your thoughts on where the, the distribution of power lies. So let, let's talk about data first, because this is the, yeah. your first battleground. Um, so is, is China the Saudi Arabia data? Yeah, I mean, the short version is no, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, this is, there's a common perception that China has a data advantage. And in digging into this in the book, I mean, that was my initial preconception that that would be true. And then digging a little bit deeper and trying to better understand well, what would it mean to have a data advantage? Where would that come from? I came to the opposite conclusion. I don't think that's true, in fact. Um, so China's alleged data advantage comes from two key factors. One, the fact that China has a larger internet user base by virtue of being a bigger country. Um, and the, the data governance regimes in China being such that there are really no restrictions on what the government can do to collect data on its citizens. Now, both of those things are true. I don't think they actually lead to a data advantage for China um, for a couple of reasons. One, it turns out that the size of a country's internet user base is not as important as the size of each company's user base. So U.S. tech companies have global reach. They're not confined to the U.S. population. Facebook and YouTube both have over 2 billion global users each. Chinese companies, meanwhile, have struggled to gain a foothold outside China other than TikTok. So WeChat, by comparison, is 1.2 billion global users. And so, um, you know, thinking about internet, national internet users turns out to be not maybe the most important metric. The other thing is that while it's true that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't have any restrictions on its ability to collect data on its citizens, it is passing restrictions on Chinese companies' ability to collect data on Chinese citizens. They're, in fact, the government's been pretty proactive in regulating um, the data that Chinese companies can collect and store, passed a number of different consumer data privacy regulations. And so there's this sort of weird bifurcation within the Chinese AI and data governance ecosystem where the, there's no restrictions on the government. It's unlike in Europe or the United States where the Many purpose of the law is to constrain the government. That's not the case inside China. The purpose of the law is a vehicle for the party's power. It's not there to constrain the party's power. Um, it's there to actually enhance it. But there are restrictions on what Chinese companies can do, in part because there have been some consumer data privacy scandals inside China. And the Chinese Communist Party does care quite a bit about social governance and, and control, uh, but also because they don't want anyone else to have the same spying powers that they do. So I think there's some areas like facial recognition where Chinese companies will have a big leg up over other um, companies in the U.S. or Europe because facial recognition is much more widely deployed. It's supported by the government. So there's more funding, there's more data, there's more feedback from deployments. But the, the thing that's really important here and why that doesn't lead to a data advantage overall is the data, it's not like oil in the sense that it's not a fungible asset. So data on better Chinese faces doesn't necessarily help you on non-Chinese faces because we know that the, these facial recognition systems tend to be not very robust as shifts across, say, different ethnicities. But also, it's certainly not going to help you with, say, military AI applications. It's not going to help you train a better AI fighter pilot. Um, and so I think that, that China's data advantage is overstated. So that politics come, comes into this. I, I was reading in... Al Jazeera actually today that um, so so Baidu has got this new chatbot coming out 
I think fairly soon. And it's it's got it's gonna think about how the Chinese Chinese Communist Party is gonna respond because it doesn't want a chat a chatbot that's going to give the wrong answer. Yeah. Um so having loads of data available is all well and good, but um what data can you actually train it on if it's going to produce politically um unacceptable answers? Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how Chinese companies respond to um, the challenges of, you know, just really not being able to control the output of these large language models. Um, we've seen this be quite a bit of a problem with ChatGPT and 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 Sydney, um, the persona, I guess, of Microsoft's Bing AI assistant. Um, and, you know, I, I've seen some analysts sort of argue that Chinese companies will be constrained in their ability to develop large language models as a result. I'm actually skeptical of that. I mean, I think they... Chinese censorship is not new. They've been dealing with this for a while. We've had chatbots get banned before. Uh, Microsoft's Chowai's chatbot got banned in China a couple of years ago because in response to a question, uh, what is your Chinese dream, a phrase that Xi Jinping uses, the bot responded, my Chinese dream is to go to America. And that did not get over well. <laughs> Chinese censors did not like that. So it got banned. So that's not a new phenomenon. Um, and we're certainly seeing with like... Um, Bing, for example, that one thing that Microsoft has done is there's a, a filter that lays on top of the chatbot's responses. And many people have shown, you know, had instances where the chatbot begins giving a response and then it triggers the filter and the filter goes back and deletes that response and censors it. Um, so I think it'll be a constraint. We've seen the chat GPT, of course, you know, oftentimes the way that it's been trained uh, can, can make it difficult to use because the guardrails in some places can be could be intense. Um, we'll see chatbots develop. My predictions: we'll see chatbots developed in China. We'll see a whole bunch of the band. We'll see some companies find ways to do these kind of clever prompt engineering attacks to uh, exploit other chatbots and get them to say stuff that gets them banned. But I think China will continue to be um, a dynamic innovator in this space. I don't think Chinese companies are going to be um, restrained at the end of the day from their ability to use these language models. Mm -hmm. So you also talk about trends within machine learning and AI and how um, in the future, um, AI is evolving towards techniques that use less data or synthetic data. And that's, this means that um, the importance of data um, might reduce in comparison to, to other inputs into AI capabilities. Can you share a few, a few thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an open question. I think there's this interesting, um, there are all these open questions about the future of AI and where we're seeing these trends in um, compute and model size and data um, going. And, you know, on the one hand, there are certainly instances that we've seen over the last several years where synthetic data can either be an augment to real-world data, and this is true for self-driving car companies, like Waymo's talked about um, using synthetic data to, to supplement their real-world data for driving simulations, or in some cases, a complete replacement for that. That's, of course, what AlphaGo Zero and AlphaZero did, just you know, not using any human training data. Or in other cases, um, enabling training in simulations and then sim to real transfer that's what uh, OpenAI did with their robotic hand doing, you know, manipulating a Rubik's Cube. That's what uh, DARPA is doing with AI dogfighting agents, training them in simulators and then transporting them out to the real world. But then there's other, um, you know, AI research like the Chinchilla paper from last year that basically shows that uh, in many cases, some of these large language models may be underpowered in the sense of the data sets that they should be using, or they're they're not using sort of a, a compute optimal approach in terms of balancing model size and data, and so maybe there are some places where, um, you know, in fact, we're undercounting the value of data. Uh, there's been some really interesting research from the, the research group Epoch on data trends in machine learning and sort of the growth of data size. Um, I, you know. One of the things that's fascinating about the trends we're seeing in the digital space is we've seen this, this parallel and reinforcing explosions of networks, of connected devices and small ubiquitous sensors, which are able to collect data and then um, data 
you know, collection and storage and then machine learning systems are trained on that data. Um, but how, how exactly that all shakes out is I think going to be really interesting in an open area, uh, going forward. Mm -hmm. So, um, you mentioned compute, which is your second, the second battleground. Um, how, how, how do you see the, the distribution of compute capabilities globally? Yeah, well, certainly we've seen compute emerge as a really critical area of competition in AI and access to frontier AI systems. Um, the amount of compute used to train cutting edge machine learning models has increased 10 billion fold since 2010. That's a staggering increase. Um, it's been doubling every six months, every 10 months for the largest models like GPT-3 or, or ChatGPT. And of course, one effect of this is that costs are rising because this compute growth is much, much faster than what we're seeing from hardware improvements alone. GPU price performance is doubling every two and a half years, every 30 months. So this is much, much faster than the hardware rate of improvement. So the cost is growing. And that is concentrating power in the hands of tech companies that have deep pockets. So of course, after ChatGPT was so successful, Microsoft increased their investment in OpenAI by another $10 billion. And um, this, this trend towards very expensive compute intensive machine learning is locking academics out of their ability to compete with these very compute intensive large models. I think that's a huge problem from a research standpoint, from a national competitiveness standpoint. I know there have been efforts underway in a few countries the UK and the US to create a national AI cloud to basically give computing resources to academics. I think that's vitally important. Um, I would very much love to see the US Congress fund the national AI research resource that effort to create a federal AI cloud for academics. Um, and then creating those compute and data resources are gonna be really important to keeping the AI ecosystems healthy and vibrant and in the long run, I'd even like to see those internationalized. So if, as a number of countries um, probably create national clouds in the next several years, making it easier for AI researchers to share those resources and making the flow of compute and data and human talent, um, things like you know, making it easier for researchers to get visas to, to visit one another uh, between democratic countries to, to work together and to harness our strengths collectively. I think is a huge advantage. So there's this increasing concentration due to rising costs where hardware improvements um, through Moore's law just aren't happening fast enough given how much compute is needed. So how about, how about human capital and AI talent? Because um, the number of Chinese authors contributing to AI journals is increasing. Um, which might strike those who care about democracy for all the reasons we've, we've given earlier in the podcast. This might be a concern, but then others might think, you know, AI research is, is openly published. So more Chinese uh, AI researchers is just the, the tide lifting all boats. And this is, um, you know, just a, a good thing for everyone. I would be yeah. one. Well, I think there's a broader issue there about sort of how we think about scientific openness and competitiveness. And I, I think that we shouldn't be naive about the ways in which AI is being used abroad. Like we talked about some of the, the uses for repression and human rights abuses. Uh, there have been a number of U.S. and European companies and universities that have been linked to Chinese organizations that themselves have been accused of committing human rights abuses and been linked to the Chinese military. So I think, I mean... You know, we do want to be conscious of the misuses of AI, um, and I think that there's a an important debate within the AI community about openness itself. Um, I realize that there's a lot of criticism from some in the AI community about large organizations like OpenAI, for example. Um, ironically, given their name, you know, being more closed in terms of sharing their uh, findings. But I do think that we want to be responsible about how this technology is used. If you look at stable diffusion as an example of this. So other companies, Google and OpenAI had not shared publicly, they not open sourced their um, 
technologies for generative AI, uh, Imogen and Dolly. Stability AI comes along. They open source Stable Diffusion. Stable Diffusion came with a content filter um, that would allow it to not generate certain types of images, like say child pornography, uh, you know, pornographic images of children. Um, and it had a watermarking filter or watermark embedded so that any AI generated image would be watermarked so that, you know, you could tell if it was generated by an AI or was a real image. And one of the first things that people did once this was open sourced is strip off the content filter and the watermarking. And so we, you know, I think we need to be responsible to how the technology is used. And so the, the, when we look at the concentration of power for AI, um, into the hands of a few tech companies, you know, there's there's a couple ways to look at that. One is that's a terrible thing for research, and we need to make sure that academics stay in a game. And I think that's why cloud, you know, federal cloud resources are valuable. But um, on the other hand, you know, we do need to be more responsible about how some of this technology is used, and just like open sourcing, you know, powerful systems and sticking them up on GitHub maybe is not the the safest thing as we the technology continues to advance. So I want to acknowledge that kind of debate. Now, in the human talent flows um, itself, what's really interesting is the China produces more of the top AI researchers than any other country in the world. But they don't stay in China. They leave China and they go to Europe and the United States. Um, and over half of China's top undergraduates studying AI come to the United States for their graduate work. And then they tend to stay there. Um, and so of Chinese undergraduates doing their PhD work in the United States, 90% of them stay in the U.S. after graduation. So, um, you know, people move. Uh, that's one of the interesting things about, about human talent and these talent flows. And um, the U.S. ends up benefiting disproportionately from these talent flows out of China because, you know, if you're not only does the U.S. have um, top-tier universities and companies, but also, you know, U.S. and Europe are going to be better places to live. Um, you're going to have more freedom um, rather than in Chinese society. You certainly don't see the same number of European and American AI researchers heading to China. And the, those figures were quite surprising to me. And the, the increase in um, AI researchers in China, that, that was less surprising. But the, the number who moved to America for their postgrads and the number who stayed there, that was definitely surprising to me. At other points in your book, you really, um, you're quite critical of American institutions and how they're ignoring big questions like, you know, how should we manage um, academic openness or how should we manage the flow of talent? Um, so how, how would you compare the different institutional environments in America and China? Um, in, which, in which respect? In terms of what are the major policies that are implemented, what's the speed of implementation of institutions to AI development? I think what's interesting is it seems to vary considerably by aspect of AI versus sector of AI. So you can look at things like facial recognition and say, okay, there's been this you know widespread deployment of surveillance cameras and facial recognition inside China. And so they're, China's way ahead of the US in terms of facial recognition deployment. Um, whereas in the U.S., there's been a grassroots movement of bans against law enforcement using facial recognition. Different cities and states have passed different regulations. And there's much more of a patchwork of regulations here in the U.S. But in other areas like generative AI, it's not, that's not the case, actually. So the Chinese Communist Party has been pretty active in regulating synthetic media online inside China, um, you know, in in. Uh, sort of preemptively talking about censorship of generative text models. So um, the Chinese government saying that Chinese companies can't use ChatGPT directly. Now, of course, they're training their own Chinese-style versions, um, but because of the potential for propaganda purposes. Whereas, of course, you know, the U.S., while companies themselves are moderating their behavior to social pressures, there's no government regulations in the same way about what companies can do. Um, and so, you know, there's just, it's interesting because there's, there are different political economies and um, there's different regulatory structures between the U S and um, China and in Europe, of course, which is leading quite a bit to AI regulation, but it's not, it doesn't quite shake 
out is in clear of a sense as like one country ends up being like net out that one country is ahead of another. Um, Cause it depends a little bit on which aspect of AI that we're talking about, which is super interesting. So these board brush comparisons aren't always accurate because there's differences in different AI capabilities. Yeah. I mean, it's helpful to, to look at high level things and, um, but, you know, certainly as, as like an analyst, sympathetic to other analysts, you know, the response of an analyst is always like, well, you know, it's really complicated. And, and, and you do want to be able to look, take a step back and look at the forest. And I think the forest is China's really good at AI. They're an AI superpower alongside the U.S. and Europe. And many of the trend lines favor China. So if you look at like research quality, yes, the top papers come out of the U.S., Overwhelming. There was just some analysis that came out this week looking at the top 100 most cited AI papers, and they overwhelmingly came from the United States. And so a snapshot in time would make you say, like, well, China's research quality is not any good. That's not true. Um, the research quality is quite good. It's just that, you know, a lot of the AI progress is driven by a handful of breakthroughs in, um, you know, a couple of key papers that then gets cited pretty you know, heavily. It's a very nonlinear distribution in terms of citations. Um, a lot of US labs, as well as of course, you know, DeepMind in the UK lead at these frontier of, of AI development. Um, but if you look at trends in research quality, the Allen Institute does some great analysis in this, looking at like, okay, the number of Chinese papers in the top 50% most cited papers, then the top 10%, then the top 1%, you see that China's been rapidly climbing and increasing in research quality over the last decade or so. Um, and so there's been some great analysis done breaking down different aspects of national AI power. The Center for Data Innovation has done some fabulous work. Tortoise also has put together some metrics online analyzing different countries across a whole range of different indices. So looking at patents and research citations and number of publications and number of PhDs and venture capital funding and government strategy. Um, and in general, the you know, overall net out that the U.S. is ahead on research and development. Um, but China is ahead on adoption and government strategy. Yeah. And I think it was in 2017 that, that um, China said, we want to be the world's primary AI innovation center by 2030. And they had this Sputnik moment where, maybe there's some disanalogies here, but the Chinese government woke up to the importance of this problem faster than the American government. So how does industrial policy compare? Well, that's another big important difference in the political economy, which is to say that the um, Chinese government is just much more active in terms of industrial policy. And so while, you know, China's plan to be the leader in AI by 2030, that got a lot of attention here in the United States, just the government action moves much slower. And the U.S. government really has not been very active in industrial policy in any sectors um, for decades. There are, there are some historical examples you can point to, U.S. involvement in the semiconductor industry in the, you know, the 80s, but it's, it's been a while. It's not generally the feature of the U.S. political economy. Um, so the U.S. government, you know, created in the wake of China's uh, plan, a National Security Commission on AI, big blue ribbon panel, included high-level folks, was chaired by Eric Schmidt, for example. They released a massive 700-page blueprint for implementing, you know, U.S. strategy on AI. But that's just an independent commission. Like they don't have legislative authority. They're not part of, you know, the, the Congress and they're not part of the executive branch. They can't actually put things into practice. It's an excellent report, um, but it doesn't mean the government's hap you know, doing it. Now, the U.S. government has been getting more active in funding science technology. Uh, last year, Congress passed a $280 billion Chips and Science Act, hugely transformative increase in terms of the government spending on science innovation. As part of that was $52 billion in subsidies for semiconductors here in the United States. And um, that's really the U.S. wading into industrial policy in a, in a pretty major way. But it is still contentious. Uh, Commerce Department is rolling out their plans for how that's going to work in practice. There's a lot of open questions about the effectiveness of some of those 
industrial policies. We will see how effective it's going to be. Um, I think more broadly, and I'm supportive of these actions, but I think more broadly, one of my concerns is that the U.S. doesn't have a very coherent strategy for what it's doing. So if you look at like the semiconductor subsidies, the U.S. has now waded into industrial policy, fire hosing $50 billion at the semiconductor industry. But the strategy seems to amount to chips are good, China is bad, which is like, you know, okay, but not it's not like super sophisticated and it's not entirely clear what the U.S. government's aims are. Is it to reshore manufacturing to the United States? Is it, if so, is it legacy manufacturing? Is it leading edge? Is it to secure supply chains? Is it to secure U.S. companies' continued dominance at key choke points in supply chains? Is it to keep U.S. companies at the forefront of the technology and investing in R&D? And if the answer is all of those things, then like how do you prioritize among them? Um, and so I, you know, I do worry about, um, the fact that the government's engaging in this effort, which I think is great. Like the energy is there, the funding is there, uh, but we have a lot of work intellectually to do to figure out how to be successful still. Mm. Uh, I think one, one memorable quote, which I've, I've got here, um, like a drunk in a bar fight, the U S threw the first punch in a global chip war with no plans how, how to finish the fights. So what does a coherent, um, what does a coherent U.S. strategy look like here with regard to chips? Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I think it's a couple things. I think one, it's acknowledging that we are fast entering an era of very compute intensive machine learning. Um, the three eras paper out of Epoch, the one that tracks the um, growth rates that I talked about earlier in compute, is really quite striking to me and I think should be the foundation for thinking about how to compete strategically in compute. Um, and so how do we maintain a competitive advantage in compute, which the U.S. has today in hardware in a really significant way? Um, China's highly dependent on foreign chips. As I mentioned earlier, they import over $400 billion a year annually. The U.S. has used this uh, in a couple instances against Huawei. And then again, um, much more recently in the October 22nd, uh, 2022 export controls in cutting off advanced GPUs to China. So the goal, from my perspective, should be to retain China's dependence on foreign produced chips that are made using U.S. equipment, retain U.S. leverage over access to compute. Because right now, even though a lot of that compute, really 90% of the most advanced chips are made in Taiwan, the U.S. still has leverage over who gets access to it because those are made using U.S. equipment. So how do we sustain that? That should be the strategic goal that we are pursuing. And from that standpoint, a couple things flow from that, some of which the U.S. government's doing, some of which it's not. One is restricting manufacturing equipment for chips to China. The October export controls do this. Japan and the Netherlands need to come on board for this to remain effective. Um, there has been an announcement, or not an announcement, I guess, there's been information publicly that the Japan and Netherlands and the U.S. have reached an agreement, but not a lot of details on what's in that. So I think it remains to be seen how effective those will be. But getting allies to come on board with those export controls is really critically important. Um Restricting the chips themselves, I actually think should be rare. I'm not a fan of the restrictions the U.S. has put in place on the GPUs today. I think that's something that's better held in reserve, keeping China dependent on foreign chips. And I worry that once you begin to cut off China's access to foreign chips, you've now incentivized the private sector to find ways around U.S. export controls, which is a real problem. So I would say not to do that and to hold that in reserve. And I've been I'm fairly critical of the restrictions on the chips themselves. I think that in the um, proactive side, in terms of investing in U.S. competitiveness and, and U.S. industrial policy, spending money on the U.S. semiconductor industry is great. I'm concerned about the lack of coherence. Again, I think the goal should be, uh, first and foremost, to keep U.S. companies in these key choke points in the supply chain, um, as they are today, that gives the U.S. this kind of leverage. And so that should um, look like a couple things. It should look like investments that are going to help kind of ensure that U.S. companies remain in a dominant market position at leading edge manufacturing equipment. And so uh, investing in R&D 
for those companies and, and um, sort of the next generation of semiconductor technology is really important so that wherever the technology is going in the future, as we see, um, you know, future advances are becoming more difficult, certainly much more expensive um, as we begin to reach the atomic limit with chips that, you know, wherever these new advances come from, whether it's an advanced uh, packaging or other areas that U.S. companies are in a leadership position, so they're investing in R&D, and then reshoring leading-edge manufacturing to the United States, partly to help diversify supply chains out of Taiwan. It's not a good thing when 90% of the world's most advanced chips are made uh, 100 miles off the coast of China in a country that China has pledged to absorb by force if necessary. I think it's a, it's a dangerous concentration of this really vital um, resource in this geopolitical flashpoint. So while it may not be true that China is the Saudi Arabia of data, it's probably fair to say that Taiwan is the Saudi Arabia of compute. And that is uh, a dangerous position to be in. So I think diversifying manufacturing for the leading edge away from Taiwan alone, could still be a lot in Taiwan, but having more of it in other places, whether it's uh, Korea, Japan, United States, Europe, would be beneficial. But having some leading edge manufacturing in the United States predominantly, not for supply chain vulnerabilities, um, but predominantly actually so that there's an ecosystem here in the U.S. of companies of human capital, engineers working on uh, the chips, the tooling uh, here at the leading edge here in the United States, I think really critically important to keep U.S. companies in this dominant position um, as semiconductor technology continues to evolve. Oh, and the last thing I'd say is I think that investing in the federal cloud, as I mentioned earlier, is a really important component of this. Um, and there are going to be probably a need for greater export controls on all aspects of the supply chain of large um, compute intensive research. So we have export controls on the chips themselves now. Again, I'm not a fan of doing that now. I think we should hold it in reserve, but it is going to be an important component. But also having export controls probably down the road on trained models of a certain size, uh, if they're if they're big enough and do use capable, and then probably some kind of governance structure even domestically on large training runs. Um, because as we get to these larger, more compute-intensive systems, they increasingly look like very dual-use kinds of capabilities. Uh -huh. Yeah. So you, you talk about the, the, the trade-offs here and restricting exports creates a strong incentive given how large Chinese demand is, um, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, it creates a strong incentive um, for um, companies to work around legislation or for production to just be increased domestically in China. Um, and and how, do you think do you think there should be changes in in policy with regard to specifically military use AI as well in America? Um, in in what way in terms of how uh, like export controls or how the U.S. military is using AI? What are you thinking of? So, for example, the Department of Defense, how it should work differently with the private sector. Ah, uh, gotcha. Well, I think the U.S. military has been very active on the. Yeah, I think the U.S. military has been very active on the policy side in putting in place um, various policies to ensure that military AI use in the United States is being done in a way that's lawful and ethical and safe and responsible. I think there's more work that could be done on AI assurance on the test and evaluation side of ensuring that AI systems are safe. Um, I just think that's a it's a difficult, unsolved technical problem, as we've seen with you know, certainly things like large language models, um, like Sydney, you know, doing some doing some strange things. And so that's an open technical problem for AI systems. And I think it's one that the military is going to have to make sure they're investing heavily in AI assurance internally to make sure that they're you know, importing best practices from the commercial sector. And then I'd like to see more engagement globally with getting other countries on board with some of these best practices for responsible adoption of military AI. The State Department actually just recently released a political declaration talking about trying to get countries to come together. Um, but no other, it was kind of, no other countries agreed to the political declaration. Um, so, you know, it's right now at the moment, like the U.S. inviting a bunch of other countries to a party and nobody's there yet. Um, 
I hope we can get other countries on board with their own similar uh, declarations or statements about how they're going to be ensuring that they're using AI in a way that is safe and responsible. Um, so, Paul, it's been great speaking to you. The final question, um, it has two parts. Um, first of all, um, what are the risks from an increasing pace of AI competition and decreasing AI safety, first of all? And second of all, what overall reasons why we should trust America? Some of our audience might be more skeptical than others, um, you know, given recent developments, unfortunate developments, in my view, in US domestic politics with populism and election denialism in the Republican Party, for example. Um, why, why should we trust America? And what are the risks of, um, you know, ratcheting up AI development? Yeah. So um, I think there's a real concern about a race to the bottom on safety. We're seeing this play out in the private sector. Um, the way that Microsoft and Google have behaved most recently um, fielding AI systems, I think is incredibly responsible. I say open AI too, all three of them. Um, but we've seen this really troubling dynamic where open AI released chat GPT and obviously, you know, a huge explosion in interest in chat GPT. Google, as a response, declared a co-red internally, said they are going to recalibrate their level of risk in deploying AI systems. Um, Microsoft turned around and invested $10 billion in OpenAI. And then both Google and Microsoft, using OpenAI's technology, basically released, um, tied to their search engines, these AI chatbots, you know, Bing and, and, and Bard, that were completely not ready for being released publicly, have all sorts of problems. Google's flubbed its demonstration in a big way, and the company lost $100 billion of valuation. Um, Bing is... Not any better. City has all sorts of problems, and yet um, somehow Microsoft's been able to to escape some of the criticism for that. And a part of it is that nobody expects that much out of Bing, right? So Google has over a hundred billion dollars a year annually in search revenue, so they have a lot to lose. So from an investor standpoint, you know this this competition is nothing but upside for Microsoft and nothing but downside for Google. Um, but I don't think. Any of these three companies have behaved very, very responsibly here. Um, and, um, you know, OpenAI had said that they were troubled by Google's response, but then they turned around and basically doubled down by, um, you know, releasing with Microsoft an upgraded version of their language model that is, if anything, less safe than ChatGPT. So, you know, I think that's, that's troubling enough. Um, and it's evidence of this dynamic already playing out in the private sector. And then I worry about this happening in the national security space um, with military systems, where the consequences could be potentially even greater in terms of the harm that they could cause. Um, and in terms of trusting the United States, uh, you know, be, be skeptical. Uh, I'm not saying the U.S. is a perfect country. <laughs> you know, I live here in Washington. Like, I was horrified by the um, the violence that we saw in the insurrection in the Capitol on January 6th. Um, Certainly, we have a lot of problems uh, internally um, in terms of, you know, election deniers and a huge wing of the Republican Party that um, that is you know, engaging in some really dangerous behavior um, that undermines U.S. democracy here. Um, you know, I think, like, we're not the only country with problems. <laughs> so, you know, we don't have it by any means figured out, but, uh, but, but there's a lot of other, uh, you know, everybody's got their own things that they're dealing with. I think when you look globally, the U.S. has certainly done quite a bit to stand up for freedom for other countries. The U.S. has done more to support Ukraine in its defense against Russia's invasion than any other country. Um, and it's giving massive amounts of aid uh, to Ukraine to help them. And I think in the global contest about how AI is deployed, I mean, I, I, in Washington, we've been talking quite a bit. The book is framed very much in sort of a U.S.-China kind of context. But Europe has a really valuable role to play in shaping AI governance and regulation. Um, Anu Bradford has talked about a race to the top on standards from a regulatory standpoint that Europe has been leading. And I think we see evidence of this with GDPR, uh, that by getting there first, Europe basically set the global norm for what data protection and data regulation look like. And then other countries, including in China, are 
looking to that as a response. Um, so, you know, I think on some of these issues of global AI governance, um, I don't think that necessarily what the U.S. is doing is the right approach either. Uh, you know, a sort of laissez-faire approach to AI regulation and the development of surveillance capitalism. Um, I think instead what we need to see is democratic societies come together to think about ways to govern AI technologies that are consistent with democratic values and to push back against this creeping tide of AI-enabled repression and techno-authoritarianism that China is spreading globally. Um, so, you know, the answer isn't um, that we turn to, you know, some U.S. tech company and say, well, do, do what you think is right. The answer is really that across democratic societies, across countries and within societies, we work together and combining the views of uh, government and civil society and the private sector and concerned citizens come up with a set of regulations for governing AI that protect human freedom and uh, individual you know, privacy. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I think that's a, 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 great, a, great, a great point and a great point um, to finish off this podcast. So where, where can our audience check out more of your stuff? Yeah, so uh, my book, Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, is out. It's available um, anywhere that books are sold. You can get it in um, hard copy or ebook form. And so it's available through you know, Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any other major bookseller. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.